morning, church. Happy Sabbath. My name is Calvin Anakaya, and I went to La Serra University, graduated there about 25 years ago. I know, that's a long time. But I did meet my amazing wife, Eden, over there, too. And actually, last time I was on this stage, I got married on this stage. That's the last time I was here, so 21 years ago. So thank you. Um, before I start this quick video on how my journey started, I just want to give a special thank you to my wife, Eden, and my three boys, Christian, Evan, and Kaden, because they've been on this journey with me, too, every step of the way. And so uh, let's go to the video before I cry. All right. uh, different video, sorry. Different video. That, yeah, you got it. a good start to a journey, right? I don't know if you're a Laker fan, but I've been a Laker fan since I was really young, like eight years old. And when they hit that shot, I was like jumping up and down, so excited, because, you know, those Spurs were the defending champions, and the Lakers just beat them and pushed them to the side, eliminated them. So I was just really pumped up. But that buzzer-beating shot by Derek Fisher was more like an alarm clock, because it woke me up to the true beginning of my journey. Literally, a few minutes later, I get a call, and it was on the home phone back in the day. No, not everybody had cell phones. So I get a call in the caller ID, and it says, Dr. Simon Madorsky. And it's just right after that game, so I'm thinking, that's not good. Um, when a doctor calls you at 8, 9 o'clock, he doesn't usually call with good news. <laughs> So I answer the phone, and it is Dr. Simon Madorsky himself telling me that the thyroid gland that he removed just three to four days ago did come back uh, being positive for thyroid cancer. But thankfully, it was a, I don't know if there's any good cancer, but it was a good thyroid cancer that was treatable versus a thyroid cancer that could literally kill you in months' time. So that was a good thing, and the treatment just consisted of usually one, and that would eradicate thyroid, the thyroid cancer that you'd have, and then that you could go back into your daily life and your usual swing of things. So that was the good news. So at that time, I was kind of young, 32. The boys, Christian was four, Evan was almost two. And Eden, my wife, was seven months pregnant with our youngest son, Caden. So that was a little scary at that time, getting the news that you have cancer, but it was a treatable cancer, so that was a good thing. Unfortunately for me, um, the next five years, so between 2004 and 2009, one treatment didn't do it for me. I had to get three treatments. So. And that was difficult, because you're left wondering, am I going to get rid of this thing? So I had a treatment in 2005, 
excuse me, 2004, right after the surgery, a month later, and then 2005, and then 2009. And the treatments consisted of going into the hospital, being checked in, and you're literally swallowing three, two or three radioactive pills. So the job of those radioactive pills is supposed to take care of the cancer. Unfortunately, it didn't for me right away. That's why I had to go get three treatments. The results would be initially good because the levels of the thyroid cancer would go down, but then it would go back up. You know, 2005, I had to go back and get it, and then 2009, I had to go get it again to reduce those levels. And after the first treatment, they found out that the cancer had spread into both of my lungs and the bones in my lower back. I have to say, though, that during that time, maybe it was a blessing because when I'd come home from the thyroid cancer treatment, I couldn't get close to my kids because they were so young. And when Eden was pregnant with our youngest son, Caden, I couldn't get, I couldn't hug them, I couldn't kiss them because I still had levels of radiation that would affect little kids. So I couldn't even get within 10 feet from them for about a week or so or 10 days. So that was really hard. But uh, a blessing was that, you know, those years that I took the chemo, the, excuse me, the radioactive iodine treatment, I don't know what it was, but those years that I took the radioactive iodine treatment, the fruit trees bore greater, bigger fruits. And then, and then when I look at Christian, Evan, and Caden, I was like, hmm, I wonder if I really wasn't far enough away because they're all bigger and taller than me now. So I'm wondering, hmm. But back to the story, another blessing, and this is the greater blessing. I was able to meet really great families here in this community of church. My boys started Lost Air Academy, and we met great families there, like the Cantos family, the Cho family, the Kim family, the Chai family, the Moons, the Seraphians. So we met a lot of great families who became like family to us. So that was the greater blessing right then and there. And everything, and we also met awesome teachers. Uh, we became members of this church community, and they gave us the love and support, encouragement, and the hope that we needed. So that was really a big blessing to us and to Eden and my boys, so thank you. Everything was good. So from 2004, 2009, I had those treatments. Everything was good until 2014. It was roughly around March when the eighth graders go on their DC trip, the annual DC trip, and then I start getting this pain in my right shoulder, and it really became obvious because one evening when we were in DC, uh, me and uh, Dr. Sam Cho and Mr. V, Mr. Valenzuela, we go to the gym in the hotel where we're staying just to exercise a little bit. The kids were all sleeping anyway, so we go and exercise. Now, you might not believe me, but Sam over there and Mr. V, they're really strong, really strong. And so they're grabbing like the 40, 45 pound dumbbells and they start flexing and doing their arm curls. And me, just I'm humbly grabbing the 25 pound and I couldn't even do that. My arm was hurting so bad. I could only do like 10 or 15 pounds. And then I, I was thinking, that's not right. That's not, you know, I'm not that strong, but I can do more than 10, 15 pounds usually. 
So ends up that the thyroid cancer had spread into the bone, into this arm bone, and it had grown, and it, it caused it to break, caused it to fracture. So I was like, oh man, what else can go wrong now? But thankfully, I went to get treatment at Hogue Hospital and had radiation for, it was during September, every day, Monday through Friday, in the mornings for that whole month of September. And thankfully to God and to this community of church, the school, the teachers, all the classmates, they were praying and for all good things and thankful to God that the treatment worked. You know, it took care of that tumor because it shrunk it and I was getting back to normal use of my arm and still couldn't do the 40, 45 pound dumbbells though. But it was a big blessing too because I met more people in this community who always were giving me those words of encouragement and support and it helped me and Eden and our family get through that hard time because when you can't use your arm, you're like worried, where, is it, where else is it gonna go and I can't use it anymore, I can't be, do my job and go on with normal daily life. So that was really hard, but thankfully to God and for this community of church, I was able to get through that because I was able to regain use. So everything was good for, for that year and I'm thinking to myself, all right, God, that's, that's enough, right? You know, um, three radioactive iodine treatments and then broke my arm and then had to go through radiation and Eden thankfully drove me every day in the morning going to Orange County in Newport Beach to get that treated. And so I was thinking to myself, asking God, that's enough, right God? And it was enough for a little bit over a year. Then November comes and we're in New York. We're with the Chai family. Eden and Sylvia are big runners. They were doing the New York Marathon. It was a Sunday morning and I, and I was like, oh, that's, I'm not doing that marathon, but I did wanna get with the feeling of, hey, what's it like to go running in New York? Because I've never been to New York, so I just wanted to run out there. So I'm running for a couple miles in New York and then something, then I forget who we were traveling with. I forget the Chai family. I was like, I couldn't remember Daryl's name. I couldn't remember Sylvia's name. I couldn't remember Natalie's name. I couldn't remember Cameron's name. And this family I'd known for like eight years now. I'm like, what the heck is going on? And it kind of worried me. And th but then their names came back after like 10, 15 minutes. And then their names came back to me. And I thought, oh, you're just getting old, Calvin, because you're now you're 43, so maybe that's just part of the aging process. So I thought everything was good. So I was like, I wasn't worried about it. But then the symptoms, the subtle symptoms started to be more. Like I'd go running on the treadmill or outside and then I'd just unexplainably trip or fall or lose my balance or I'd go play basketball at the park with my boys or some of the guys and my coordination was all off and again I just attributed it to getting older and couldn't do that stuff anymore. So it, I just put it to the side and didn't really worry about it. No, uh, December comes, still same year, 2015, and then I start getting these crucial nagging headaches. One, it was right over the left eye, it was right over the left eye, and then right 
it was also on the left side of my skull right here. It was just really painful. It was just stabbing and piercing. And at first I thought, you know, I had some eyes surgery procedures done. So maybe I thought that was, was causing the pain in the eye and in the left side of my temple. So I go see my ophthalmologist, Dr. Simji, and she says she has a procedure that might alleviate that pain because of the previous procedures I had. So the pain did go away. The pain went away for about a week, roughly. And then it came back and it was even more painful than that. And I was like, what's going on? And I'm thinking maybe it's just because it's Christmas season and you know how busy that gets and work and so forth. The kids have their Christmas programs and activities. So I thought it was just that. And the vacation time was coming and I was like, okay, vacation time's coming so that should be feeling much better after that because I'll have some rest and so forth. But that vacation time didn't help. I thought I had caught a flu and you know, a head cold, because the pain was even more severe to the point where I had to take Tylenol or Aleve or some sort of pain medicine that would just allow me to tolerate that pain. And if I forgot to take it, at the end of the day when I get home from work, I'd be on the floor like curled up in a ball in a fetal position because it was so, so painful. And the pain was just not staying here now. It started gradually going through to the back of my head. And Eden, you know, she's been so on me like, go see your doctor, go see your doctor so we can figure out what's going on. And you know, I did have monthly visits with my oncologist. So I said, honey, I'll go see the doctor, but let's just wait till, you know, it's the time of the month in January because I don't want to go to Newport Beach. You know, I'm just, didn't want to face that traffic. And I said, well, We'll get to it when end, end of the month when the uh, scheduled appointment is here. So that day comes. We go down to the doctor, see my oncologist for the routine visit, normal visit. And we're telling, uh, his name is Dr. Greg Angstrich, and we're telling him the symptoms. And then he immediately says, you need to go to get your brain scanned with the MRI. And I said, okay, okay. And it was just right next door, so me and Eden just walk on over next door. And I've had MRIs, plenty of them during this journey. So I was, okay, it's fine, it's normal, it's, it'll be good. And then I get the MRI done. Eden's waiting for, for me in the next room. And I come out, I grab my, I'm getting ready to grab my stuff. And then the technician says, Mr. Ankaya, wait. Wait, and I was like, wait, wait for what? I never waited for to wait. He said, wait for the doctor to come. And in all my years of getting scans through this journey, I never had to wait. And I was like, I look at Ed and I'm like, that's not good. So we wait in the lobby and we're sitting there and it was just minutes, but it seemed like forever. And then the doctor, the radiologist motions me and Ed and come, come on over to the room where they, the scan of the brain was on the monitor. And she points us to the point of the brain and she was like, see this? And, I was, and we're like, yeah? It's, it's the size of a golf ball. And I was like, there's nothing on the other side, but there was a size of a golf ball tumor on my left side of my brain. And the doctor said, that's why you're having all these symptoms. Not only is it affecting the immediate area surrounding the tumor, but it's also affecting and pushing other parts of your brain 
like a domino effect. That's why you're getting the pain in the back of your neck. That's why you're losing your balance and your coordination because the back of your brain in that area controls that stuff. So she said, that's why you need to go to the ER right now at Hogue Hospital. I've already talked to your oncologist and we've already arranged for you to go up to the hospital to be admitted after you're in the ER at Hogue Hospital. So I'm like so scared right now during that time, so scared. Eden was calm, but I knew inside she was like a nervous wreck too. She starts calling people we know. She calls uh, Dr. Ken Cantos, who's been a real close family friend. And he calls everyone else. He calls uh, Dr. Sam Cho. He calls Dr. Uh, James Kim, Dr. Stephen Kim. And when I'm being examined in the ER at this time, I come out to the waiting room in the ER. And then those guys are waiting for me, Ken, Sam, and Stephen. And I was, I was relieved because it was like they knew what, you know, Ken, Sam, and and Stephen were there, and it was kind of a support and, and hope that I needed to have, and as well as Eden. So that was a Thursday night, January 28, that I was checked into the ER. And then they took me upstairs, and they had already determined that I was going to need to have surgery, that they were going to remove this tumor the very next day after I saw my oncologist. And I was thinking to myself, that's pretty fast. They, this must be serious. So I was definitely a, a, a lot worried. But it was great to have those guys there supporting not just me, but giving support and encouragement and hope to Eden. So I'm in the hospital that Thursday being admitted and the doctor, the neurosurgeon comes in and explains to me what is going to happen. And it was also another great reason that it was good for Ken and Sam and Steven to be there was because they're doctors and they could kind of make sense of what they were, the neurosurgeon was gonna do. And the neurosurgeon actually said that we don't know how successful this brain surgery is gonna be because of the size of the tumor. And the size of the tumor, they don't know if they'll be able to remove all of it. And then also the size of the tumor was surrounding a large amount of major blood vessels. So if they try to take that tumor out and they accidentally ruptured the blood vessels in your brain, then obviously that's not a good result. So definitely there was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fearfulness going into that evening. Ken tells me he called Pastor Chris, and before you know it, she's down in Newport Beach visiting there with us and the family and just giving us words of hope, encouragement, and support, and putting our trust and faith in God. So that was really awesome. That was really great for her to do that. And more families came in. Uh, Stephen's wife, Julie, came as well. Sylvia came, Daryl's wife. And continue, just, I just felt this overwhelming abundance of love and support from this church 
from this community of church and that was really great. That helped to kind of calm me down and as well as Eden and so that was wonderful. So the next morning, the day of the surgery, Ken's already there before I think, before I wake up, he's already visiting and chatting with me, seeing and how I'm doing. The surgeon, neurosurgeon has started to put these markers on my head, right around this left side of my head, my skull. And I guess it's just to make sure he's operating on the right side, on the correct side. So I was like, okay, that's good. And it, it made me look like an alien, but I was like, okay, just get the proper, the correct side. So that was good. But more visitors came, and I just felt this overwhelming love and support. And it was definitely scared in the moment, but having the people there to give you words of comfort and, and hopefulness and encouragement, that was really awesome. That was really great. And then another visitor had come. Um, the Valenzuelas come. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. V and Becky, they come. They pray with us. They continue to outpour that love and support that me and Ed and need at that moment. Um, we get closer to the time of surgery. Lisa Kim comes with her f- um, family, and um, James was not able to come because he was on a ski trip, but I felt so bad. Lisa tells me that James cut a ski trip short so he can be there, but that was just amazing to me, the, the love and support that I felt. So... The day of the surgery comes, or excuse me, the evening of the surgery comes, so they do the surgery, and I was just in, like in this video that we'll show later, I was just so much, in so much pain with that throbbing headache and pain sharp and piercing, and it was just unbearable, and you'll see it in my face, but to have the support of the community of church was wonderful, and it didn't, it was nonstop. I'm not kidding, they kept, people kept coming and visiting, and that was so great. Surgery comes, surgery's completed, it was finished probably close to midnight, Friday night on the 29th, and I, people were waiting with Eden during the surgery, our close family friends, and giving her that support so she didn't feel alone, and that was wonderful. The neurosurgeon tells Eden, I don't know how Calvin will be when he wakes up. He might have difficulty talking. He might have slurred speech. He might have difficulty putting words together to form sentences just because of the area of where the tumor was at. But when I woke up, I was like, wow, this is, I'm not in any pain at all. I was... Eden was surprised I was talking normal and everything was fine. And it was just such a big relief that on Sabbath morning when I woke up, everything was fine. It, it didn't seem like anything was wrong. And that was so wonderful to feel like that. And during that whole day of Sabbath rest, people still kept coming to the hospital, giving their words of encouragement, their words of hope their prayer, their support, that was so wonderful to see, that was so wonderful to have, because I knew I wasn't going on that journey alone. That was very touching to me. And believe it or not, it was amazing because I felt so good, I wanted to get out of there. I love the hospital, I wanted to get out of there. So literally, the doctors were, the surgeons were kind of like amazed. They wanted to keep me there, but they were like, no, you don't need to be here. So less than 48 hours after surgery, I was able to go back home. 
So thank you for that, church. Thank you. And thank you. What's even more touching is that even after surgery, people still, still kept checking up on me. A few days after going home, I get this stack of cards, bag of cards from so many people. Mrs. Pareda's students in her class gave me a stack of cards, well wishes. Mrs. Peter's class gave me a whole bunch of cards. And the different special families that I've grown close to gave me cards and well wishes. So it was very touching and something I'll never forget. And this journey has been hard. It has been difficult. And it has been difficult, I know, for Eden and my boys, our boys. I know it's been difficult for them. But when I look back on it, this blessing has been a, this journey has been a blessing, excuse me. This journey has been a blessing because of the people that have been there that God has put in my life, in my wife's life, and in my son's life to surround us with, with that compassion, that love, that support. And that has given me strength and that has given us strength to continue on this journey because the journey is not done. I still have cancer in both lungs, I'm taking oral chemo every day to kind of keep the thyroid cancer levels down. But I still feel that love and support from all of this community of church and I'm so grateful for that. And the, this following slideshow, Eden put together, so thank you for that, honey. Thank you for putting that together for me. It's just a summary of the darkest moments of this journey when I had that surgery, but it also shows the love and support that I received from this community of church and how God's light shone through every one of you guys that supported me. And it, it lit my pathway when there was dark paths. So this is the video, just a, a little summary of what happened to me, just so you can get a visualization of what happened. Thank you so much. Thank you, Calvin. And thank you, Eden, and Christian, and Evan, and Caden, because we know this is your story too, and your journey, so we thank you for sharing all of this with us. Is it okay if I uh, read you the text that I have been thinking about uh, as I've been listening to Calvin's story over the last few weeks? Um, it, it's a little bit longer than usual, but uh, it's a familiar one, and I feel like reading it, we can just hear what Paul is up to here, because this is Paul writing to the early followers of Jesus in the Greek city of Corinth, and he's getting at the thing he cares about so deeply. What is this church thing that we do? So here's 1 Corinthians 12. Um, it goes like this. Christ is just like the human body. And catch that, we're going to come back to that sentence. A body is a unit and has many parts, and all the parts of the body are one body, even though there are many. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek or slave or free, and we all were given one spirit to drink. Certainly the body isn't one part, but many. If the foot says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not a hand, does that mean it's not part of the body? And if the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye, does that mean it's not part of the body? 
If the whole body were an eye, what would happen to the hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, what would happen to the sense of smell? But as it is, God has placed each one of the parts in the body just like he wanted. If all were one and the same body part, what would happen to the body? But as it is, there are many parts but one body. So the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Or in turn, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Instead, the parts of the body that people think are the weakest are the most necessary. The parts of the body that we think are less honorable are the ones we honor the most. The private parts of our body that aren't presentable are the ones that are given the most dignity. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts with less honor so that there won't be division in the body and so the parts might have mutual concern for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part gets the glory, all the parts celebrate with it. You are the body of Christ and parts of each other. Amen. Friends, I feel like we could stop right there with that text and Calvin's story and just chew on that. The opening line, Christ is just like a human body. That's a stunning start, isn't it? I, I automatically hear that as the church is just like a human body, but that's not what Paul says. Paul said, Christ is like the human body. We could almost just stop there. Except that since this is my last chance to talk to you all before uh, transitioning from this incredible privilege of being paid to be a member of this church to, uh, to being a volunteer member of this church from a distance a lot of the time, because this is my last chance, I've got a couple more things to say if, if we have just a few more minutes. Is that okay? And uh, before those two things, one thing that I should say is simply thank you. Uh, thank you for... So we just get this done now. Thank you for the immeasurable privilege of being your pastor for six and a half years. I cannot think of a, a, better, a better privilege, so thank you. So that's one thing. But Paul says that Christ is just like the human body, consisting of many parts that make up the whole. And actually, Paul's word is many members that make up the whole. That's the, the Greek word. And when we think members, we think something kind of sterile like people who are registered in a database. But Paul means members, like parts of the body. You are members of the whole. You are, you are arms and legs and, and ears and eyes, organs and appendages. You are members of a body. So if you become a member of this church in the past, you were becoming a body part that makes up this body of Christ, makes up Christ. So Paul is responding actually to something that was fairly common. Other political philosophers in Rome used to talk and, and orators would talk about the, the city or the empire as a body. 
And they would use this metaphor again to say there are many parts of the body, and here's what they were aiming for. Don't worry, there are different levels and different roles and different statuses, and if you find yourself in a lower status, that's just the way it's meant to be. It's okay. That's what the orators usually meant when they use this metaphor. So Paul grabs the same metaphor to talk about the church, and he wants to describe an alternative society. Paul says, takes the same metaphor, flips it on his head, and says, every single member of the body is indispensable as any other. Not just because it each has some unique function, Paul is going deeper than that. Imagine, Paul says, the whole body as an ear. That is an absurd idea. And just as absurd is to imagine the body of Christ without any one of this whole diversity of people present. That's absurd. But Paul keeps going. He presses this metaphor even just a little bit more. He presses harder on the assumptions of honor and shame that are operating when the Romans talk about this and the the elite people talk about this. He He presses precisely on status and hierarchy. It's the things they were intending to emphasize with this body metaphor. And remember, in some in a body, some parts are simply more shameful, and others are weaker, and others are lower, they would say, and that's just the way it is. Except Paul cleverly turns this metaphor on its head. Paul says, somewhat uncomfortably, think about those body parts that we consider shameful. Those parts with the least honor, Paul says, we cover them, which is actually a way of showing them great honor. (laughs) It's tricky. But Paul just says, nice try, Roman politicians and preachers. Your metaphor's got a flaw. The weakest parts receive the most honor. This is Paul's logic that he wants to get at. And it sounds like someone else Paul had listened to, right? Sound like Jesus a little bit? The least shall be greatest. The weak shall be strong. The meek shall inherit the earth. Upside down and right side up. This is what Paul drives out. This is what Jesus was driving at all the time. And when we hear about this flipping and this upside down, we first we immediately ask, is it, is it that Jesus and Paul are setting up a new hierarchy where, where the, the, new pe- the people at the bottom are now on top and we just turn everything upside down and we have this new thing? No, but they are demonstrating that when things have gotten out of balance, there is some really intentional work that has to happen to bring things back into balance. And so church, that means when a person or a group of people is targeted with hate or violence or exclusion or shame, then the body of Christ has to do something about it. We have something to say about that. And in response, we may need to give extra love or extra healing or extra honor or extra welcome to those specific groups of people because we're the body of Christ. And when one part suffers, we all suffer. When one part is targeted with hate and violence, violence through bullets, but also violence through words, when one part is targeted, we are all targeted because we're the body of Christ. So if anyone among us today 
feels any less safe or any less welcome or any less whole and well, then we are all less well and less whole because we're the body of Christ, which means we have some correcting and some healing and some restorative work to do because we're the body of Christ. That's what it means to be church. Church. That's what is worth our time and our energy and our commitment. And I know I've said this before, but this is the sort of thing you do when you get all reflective in transition time. You repeat yourself. You can get inspiration and teaching from TED Talks. You can get great coffee and conversation at really good coffee shops. You can hear a band at a concert or an open mic night. You can even get pipe organ at Walt Disney Hall for cheaper than your tithe, or you can get it for free at Balboa Park in San Diego, and it's beautiful and not 100 degrees out there. You can get advice from a life coach. You can get support from a support group. But the church is this crazy space where we are invited called out as a diverse community of persons to be together the body of Christ for each other and for the world that God loves. The church is this crazy space where we come together and we work on this set of practices that embody the way of Jesus and, and, and we work on them together and we end up trying to do these specific things, things like generosity, grace, and forgiveness. We work out those things together. Things like love, love that is shown in mutual service with each other. Things like worship, where we seek God's kingdom and give allegiance to God's kingdom over any other kingdom that asks for our allegiance. We practice welcome, this radical hospitality that is an end in itself. Not for the sake of something else, welcome is the thing we do to embody the kingdom of God. Grace, generosity, you can put that list up, Zach. Grace, generosity, forgiveness, love, worship, welcome, these practices. This is what it means to be the church. It's what Calvin was witnessing about today. Did you hear in his story over and over what he said? Through every twist and turn, it was the community of people that showed up that made all the difference. And he could name names, and you see the web of relationships going through this church. You see the web of history as, as he stands on the platform for the first time since his wedding to then tell his story of what all these 21 years have meant. It's the body of Christ. Pastor Chris was just texting while she was listening to you, Calvin, remembering that, that that evening when everyone was gathering at your bedside, you were just saying, Oh, you guys are all so busy. It's Friday night. Just go home. I've given you enough trouble, enough trouble. <laughs> it's the humility of someone who doesn't even want to trouble the community, but they are there to say, this moment matters for you, for your family, your friends. We are the body of Christ. 
As I listen to Calvin talk and say over and over this week, what is also beautiful to me is that his, his speaking about this is not a naive assumption about how everything just sort of works out beautifully in community. Because Calvin can also speak very articulately about the, the complexity and ambiguity as he begins to, to tell stories that we know in our community that haven't turned out the same way that his has. And he can name names because they've walked those stories together. And it's complex. And Calvin said, I'm going to have some questions for God one of these days. And still, he's hopeful and grateful and resilient. And it's that sort of faith and that sort of theology, Calvin, and that sort of church that gives me hope and inspiration. And in no small part because I have seen that that is the kind of church that gives life to the Anakia family. And if it gives life to a family who's gone on a story like this, then it must be able to give life to all of us. It's that real and authentic, no punches pulled, community of people gathered together, committed to grace and generosity and forgiveness and love and worship and radical welcome. That's, that's church. And if those words sound a little familiar, they, they ought to because they're actually your words, La Sierra. These are words that came from when we spent dozens and dozens of hours a couple summers ago recording many of you sitting around tables talking about this church, what's been meaningful, what works, what you see, what your vision is, all of those things. And when a lot of people did a lot of work to distill down those words, we ended up with something like you see written on the walls of the church when you come in, posted on the homepage of our website, and maybe still in the info rack, some bookmarks with those words written on them. I'm taking a handful of those bookmarks with me, just so you know. It's what it means to be church. It's what you all have said it means to be this particular La Sierra University Church. So, I'll close, let's close with these words, the statement of who we all, you all, are aiming to be. We gather weekly for worship with the Bible open to hear fresh words from ancient sacred stories, seeking always to be relevant and raw and wrestling with our faith. Dependent on the Spirit, we strive to be a community of Jesus followers who are authentic, transparent, inclusive, and compassionate. You, La Sierra are the body of Christ. Amen.